previously on American Thought Leaders. The mass is formed around the idea that the vaccines are magically going to be able to relieve them of this problem. In part one of my interview with Dr. Robert Malone, the pioneer of mRNA vaccine technology, we discussed his career and the intriguing psychological phenomenon known as mass formation. Now in part two... This will move through the entire population, whether you're wearing masks or not, unless you live on top of a mountain and nobody talks to you ever. We discuss how the COVID vaccines are faring against Omicron and how the concept of herd immunity has been grossly misunderstood. Herd immunity is not a binary thing. And why he's deeply concerned about vaccine mandates for children. The government has no data upon which to base any mandate requiring these vaccines which are mismatched for Omicron. And the price children have paid during this pandemic. It's not just the jabs, it's the masks. There are measurable deterioration in very young children of a 20-point IQ drop. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. We have this new variant, Omicron, that appears to be becoming the dominant variant. I've actually I've written this into an op-ed. It appears to be milder. It appears that it's much more contagious uh, than Delta. Um, and But that, at the same time, it actually appears, from what I've seen, that the vaccines aren't particularly effective against it at this point. Um, yet some of the policy seems to be, again, further doubling down on the vaccine. And this is all in the context of what we just talked about. So can you tell me what is the right approach here as Omicron starts spreading through the population in your mind? Before that, I want you to kind of tell me, explain the field of what it looks like based on the available information right now. Omicron is a fascinating case that is intrinsically disrupting the narrative. It's consistent with one of the uh, projected outcomes that is often observed when a new pathogen, particularly a new virus, crosses into a new species. So what we're watching play out in real time with all of our obsession is something that virologists and public health officials have seen again and again and again. The usual course of what proceeds when a virus jumps into a new species, whether this virus was engineered or came out of bats in a cave or pangolins, it's kind of irrelevant from an evolutionary standpoint. It entered a new host, humans. And it's important for the uh, viewership to recognize that this is fundamentally a parasite. That is what viruses are. They are not truly alive until they enter our cells. Then they acquire capabilities from our cells. They rely on our cells to provide them the food necessary to replicate. What viruses really are is amazingly small, highly compressed DNA and RNA replication machinery that allows those nucleic acids to pass through time. We are their food. And when a virus moves into a new host, whether it's a bat to a mouse, or a mouse to a human, or a pig to a human, or a pig to a chicken, or whatever, it tends to go through an evolutionary process that will last months, typically years, 
maybe decades, in which it gradually adapts to life with that host, evolutionarily. And as it does that, it will often become more infectious and less pathogenic. If you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, it makes sense. For instance, Ebola is a great example. Ebola, typically, this is what was unique about the recent outbreaks, large outbreaks, is typically Ebola has been self-limiting. It is so pathogenic, it causes such profound disease that the people that have it, when it crosses into a small village, it will burn through that village and those people will die quite quickly. But because the villages are isolated, it won't spread to the next village because the people become so sick so quick that they stay in that village and they die. That is not in the interests of the virus. It would be much better for the virus if it didn't kill people so quickly and that they didn't feel so sick so that they would go migrate to the next village to trade their cattle or whatever they do and spread the virus to there and likewise, okay? So that's just typical viral evolutionary dynamics when it crosses into a new host. The risk has been, as, as uh, particularly featured by the work in thinking of Gert Vandenbosche, is that there are some instances where if you start vaccinating into an ongoing pandemic, Unlike vaccination before the virus enters or spreads into your village, okay, that's, that's a different situation. If everybody in your village is vaccinated before the guy from the next village comes walking over trading his cattle or whatever the thing is that causes him to interact with you, then the virus finds it very hard to, find, to get a toehold in that new environmental niche of this hypothetical new village. But if that village is already infected and you start vaccinating into that with a vaccine that is leaky, we talked about this the last time we spoke, a vaccine that is far from perfect in its ability to block infection, replication, and spread transmission to other people, then what will happen is that virus will evolve in that environment, particularly to escape the evolutionary selective pressure of the vaccine. And we have seen this in real time. Gert predicted it. I predicted it. This evolutionary escape or the development of super viruses, just like we have the development of super pathogens when you overuse antibiotics in livestock, for example. Okay, That has been happening. And one exemplar of that is Delta. What Gert is were concerned about historically is there are cases, particularly in the veterinary world, where vaccination vaccines were deployed into herds or flocks that had an ongoing outbreak, and with certain types of viruses, Merrick's disease is the notable example, kind of a case study, you will get more severe disease over time that is more highly infectious. You'll have the worst of both worlds. Okay? The good news is we may have seen that somewhat with Delta, Omicron is not behaving that way. Omicron is behaving in a way that demonstrates, and the data is now quite advanced from South Africa. South Africa, which was under-vaccinated by U.S. standards, and certainly European standards, had something like 20% vaccine uptake, had these dense urban areas like Johannesburg, in which the virus took off, Omicron took off, when it came from Botswana. 
and um, yet they have seen remarkably low, if any, deaths directly attributable to Omicron, some hospitalization. But with a pathogen that is up to 200 times, you know, 10 in the range of 10 to 200 times more infectious than Delta, Omicron basically outcompetes Delta in a population. And yet it is less pathogenic. It's a paradox. Omicron is more highly infectious, more path uh, less pathogenic, more readily spread, reproduces at higher levels. And the paradox is why isn't it producing more disease? You would think intrinsically more virus, more infections, you would have more disease than Delta. That's not the case. We've had from multiple laboratories now in the world, Hong Kong and the UK in particular, little hints about what's going on. It appears there's a couple of common threads that multiple laboratories are reporting. None of this is peer-reviewed. It is early data because everything is moving really fast. It appears, based on data from Hong Kong University, that the prior strains have had a predilection for infecting deep lung. And Omicron appears to have a predilection for infecting conducting airways, so up higher in the respiratory tree. Now we've seen this pattern before, and a great example is H1N1, influenza. H5N9 is another one. Influenza viruses, so there's different variants of H1N1 that are out there. And they're variants that have slightly different affinity for sialic acid receptors. This is the particular equivalent of ACE2 in the case of SARS-CoV-2, the receptor that the virus uses to gain entry. And subtle difference in sialic acids can be sialic acid sialation patterns on the proteins can cause an influenza virus to preferentially infect deep lung versus a conducting airway. The deep lung targeting viruses tend to be highly pathogenic, and the conducting airway viruses tend to be much less pathogenic. In addition, there is, so this is the pattern that we're seeing with Omicron. It appears that it is more sore throat and nasopharynx and less of the uh, pneumonia ground glass opacity phenotype, less, by the way, of the um, uh, loss of smell and taste than the prior strains have been. There's still some of the night sweats, but I think they may be less severe. Data's still evolving on that than with the prior strains. It is clearly more infectious. We spoke before about reproductive coefficients. And, uh, the baseline reproductive coefficient is defined as if I'm infected, to put it in simple words, if I'm infected, and I take no other measures. I'm not vaccinated. I'm not wearing a mask. We're not doing social distancing. I'm just moving about in my world, you know, shopping and doing my business. How many people on average will I infect? So an R-naught of two, which is kind of two to three is where the prototypic Wuhan strain was at, means that if I'm infected, I will on average, with no other interventions, infect two to three other people. With Delta, we had an R-naught that was in the kind of five to six range, a little less than measles, still incredibly infectious and much more infectious than the original Wuhan strain. Okay, tracking what one would expect from a virus evolutionarily, 
is over time it would evolve to become more infectious and produce more virus in a new host. Omicron has a reproductive coefficient that is in the range of measles if not higher. Measles is one of the most highly infectious human viral pathogens we know. It is insanely infectious. It has an R0, Omicron, has an R0 in the 7 to 10 range. That means that if you're infected and you go to a party and move about in the party, on average, you will infect 7 to 10 other people. Now, there's some intriguing data that is emergent, let's say, um, that suggests that it may be that you have an increased probability of being infected as you move around in the environment if you have been vaccinated with one jab, one dose of vaccine, genetic vaccine. And if you have two doses of vaccine, you have an even higher risk, so we call this negative effectiveness, of being infected by Omicron. And if you have three doses of vaccine, remember the Israelis are now going to four, if you have three doses, so you have the booster, you have an even higher risk of being infected by Omicron than somebody that did not receive vaccine or received one dose of vaccine or received two doses of vaccine. So your risk of infection on average appears in some data sets from national governments to be highest if you've received three doses with Omicron. This is worrisome because it suggests that there are aspects of Omicron that may be being enhanced by something that is associated with vaccination. And there's a bunch of different hypotheses. Don't go straight to antibody-dependent enhancement. That is one of many different ways. And here's a trivial. Um, as you receive more vaccine, it may change your behavior. If you're a European young person, you may be more likely to go clubbing if you've had two jabs than if you have three jabs, maybe three jabs, you're even more likely to go clubbing and exist in these large intense groups that are perfect breeding factories for infection. So I use that as a trivial example that we can't jump to conclusions about the mechanisms, but the data seem to be there. And I'm hearing from multiple patients anecdotally, you know, in New Year's Eve parties or Christmas parties or other social gatherings where inadvertently most people are jabbed maybe one or two has not taken vaccine and somebody comes into that environment that's infected. I'm hearing anecdotally that the people that are previously vaccinated are often become infected and symptomatic much sooner and at a much higher rate than those that were not previously um, vaccinated. Here's the rub with all of that is Looking at the CDC data, they've stopped reporting the incidence, the prevalence, I should say, of having been infected in the United States. They stopped reporting it at about 45% a couple months ago. But if you look at the trend curves, there's a good chance that about 70% of the entire population in the United States has been infected with some version of SARS-CoV-2, which means that they've developed natural immunity. So when we talk about the difference between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, we have to recognize that there's a bunch of subgroups within that. And um, we have 
those that are probably naturally immune but not vaccinated. We have naturally immune that have received vaccine, and we have ones that have not encountered the virus before but have been vaccinated. So it's complicated right now. We don't have clean data, but in general, the good news is that Omicron is much, much less pathogenic, even though it's much more highly infectious. And I went out on a limb about this as the South African data was coming in before Christmas. And, you know, it's on Laura Ingram. Uh, I spoke about it. I wrote about it in my Substack that it looked to me like Omicron was something like a gift. Uh, whether you believe in a divine entity or whatever, um, Omicron looked to me like a lot like what if I was given the task of what would be the optimal characteristics of an infectious, live attenuated vaccine virus, what would that look like? What would be its characteristics? It would infect the nasopharynx and the upper respiratory tract. It would spread freely in the population. It would generate a strong T cell response and mucosal immune response. And people afterwards would not have major symptoms would not die from it. It would be attenuated. Uh, but they would develop natural immunity after having recovered from the infection. And I spoke about this at a time when this was heresy. All of the broadcast uh, media was focusing everybody on the fear of Omicron. But the data are out. Um, they are increasingly strong. As, as Laura Ingram quoted the other day when I was on her show, 300% increase in uh, virus infection with Omicron and a 3% decrease in hospitalizations. You got to keep in mind if a lot more people are getting infected at the same time, and this will move through the entire population, whether you're wearing masks or not masks, unless you live on top of a mountain and nobody talks to you ever. Um, that's just what's going to happen. It is that insanely infectious, whether you're vaccinated or not vaccinated, it may be that natural infection provides more protection than the vaccine does, but the majority of America will be infected by Omicron and they will develop natural immunity. And if we're lucky, we will get to a point where we finally do reach something like herd immunity. And this virus just becomes another indigenous coronavirus in the population, like the currently circulating beta coronaviruses that we call the common cold. So, you know, herd immunity, this is another concept that's kind of been weaponized, you know, in, <laughs> in the media, okay, certainly in, among people. But, you know, herd immunity is something that is just going to happen with anything, right? Assuming that humanity survives. Hopefully. Um, <laughs> or it won't. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe the virus keeps evolving. Because um, this one okay. evolves really fast. But let's hope it does. Mm -hmm. We do develop herd immunity or something akin to it. But the vaccines, the genetic vaccines, uh, don't contribute to the herd immunity. Or do they? I wouldn't, I wouldn't phrase it that way. Um, when you say won't contribute, that's an absolute statement. And none of this is absolute. So just to loop back a little bit about herd immunity... Herd immunity is not a binary thing. We've reached it or we haven't reached it. Okay? It's, there's, there's, there's those, there are those, there's a school of thought that the characteristic of the modern educated mind is a comprehension of calculus. 
Calculus is a metaphor. What we have is an asymptote, a limit line, which is that the reproductive coefficient falls below 1. What is herd immunity? It is a time in which if I happen to be infected, the probability that I will infect anybody else is less than 1. This is like thinking about a thermonuclear reaction, a chain reaction. You quench the th chain reaction by putting the carbon rods in there because they absorb the uh, neutrons, typically. Um, and so they can no longer participate in a chain reaction in an eventual explosion. That's how nuclear energy is tamed. Likewise with viruses. When we reach a point where the probability when I'm infected that I infect less than one other person, the virus will be quenched. It will no longer spread in the population. That doesn't mean that everyone will be perfectly protected. It means it won't be spreading in the population anymore. And you don't, that's not a binary number if we hit 70%. The flaw here was that our public health officials made these grossly naive statements about if we hit this milestone of vaccine uptake, we will reach herd immunity. If we hit this milestone, that was just horrible, ignorant messaging. And it reflects the fact that those people that are making those statements, and you know who I'm speaking about, are not actually trained in epidemiology. And yet they put out this messaging about, well, if we only reach this milestone, we will hit herd immunity or that milestone. And they kept, it kept creeping up because we weren't hitting herd immunity. And the fault is that they should have never made those statements in the first place. Herd immunity is a really complicated variable. And like I said, if you think of a limit line, that is that the reproductive coefficient falls below one, herd immunity is approached on a curve that approaches that as an asymptote. For those that are, are understanding calculus, that's what it is. That's how it works. It doesn't, it's not like a straight line and we cross it and we say, oh, there we are, we're all here. We've reached virus nirvana. That's not how it works. We will gradually get closer and closer to it and the spread of the virus will become more and more and more difficult. And, and Jan, this is a nuance that many people don't kind of get. And it's built into the human immune system, this assumption. What happens when we're talking about herd immunity, we're mostly talking about adults some pediatric, and they reach this threshold, and then the virus stops circulating, but it's still present in the environment. By the way, this virus exists in deer and cats and everything else. We're never going to get rid of this virus. We're done. That's, that ship left the dock. What will happen is as more people are born, they form a larger and larger cohort of those that have not previously encountered the virus until they reach a sufficient number that you can have virus replication and spread at greater than an R naught of one, and then it will take off, but it will only hit the pediatric cohort. That's why we have pediatric viral disease. If you understand that, you have now graduated from Viral Epidemiology 101. It's an advanced concept, but it's actually not that hard to understand. So that is what herd immunity is all about. And the vaccines, unfortunately, don't seem to be able to get us there. They are too leaky. What they are only able to do so far 
is on an individual basis, they provide a significant level of protection against death, but so does natural immunity. And the data are clear that from the vast majority of us, except for the high-risk populations, the probability of you dying if you become infected. Remember, I've had the disease twice. Ain't dead yet. Um, uh, never had optimal therapy, never went to the hospital. Never really saw a doctor for either of my cases. Um, so you don't have to fear this. Most of us survive it just fine. And with Omicron, your risk of death and disease has dropped far. It's dropped precipitously compared to Delta, particularly in children. Okay. And so what happens if we allow Omicron to spread in our population? We kind of can't stop it anyhow. So you might as well, you know, make uh, lemonade out of lemons. Uh, as it spreads through the population, we will develop a complex, diverse immune response of both T and B cells, antibody and effector T cells, that will confer eventually, hopefully, herd immunity to all of us. And then it will become a pediatric disease that pops up periodically at different places in the world. And we'll probably be you know, thinking about better safer pediatric vaccines that we might wish to deploy in that situation, which is a long way from where we're at right now. Does that make sense? Makes a ton of sense, but let's just talk about, you know, you are part of the Unity project or Unity initiative in California, specifically focused on opposing mandates for children, right? Um, why is this so important to you? What I have seen in the data, I have become convinced that these genetic vaccines, which is all we have available in the United States. When I started speaking about the risks of the genetic vaccines in the United States, this was heresy. It was forbidden speech. It still is. Um, and the official line was that all three of these vaccines were safe and effective. Now, as the, the government has come to terms with the fact that the adenovirus vectors are causing excess deaths and they are no longer recommending the J&J &J vaccine. So now we're left with two RNA vaccines. One has three times the dose of the other, that's Moderna, is three times the dose of Pfizer. Now, globally, there are seven WHO licensed vaccines. There are multiple other vaccines that are traditional. Um, inactivated subunit or inactivated whole virus. And there are countries like Peru that assert that these whole inactivated virus vaccines are actually providing superior protection against the newer variants because they elicit a more diverse immune response, more like natural immunity. But here in the States, we've only been allowed access to the two genetic vaccines, one of which was developed explicitly at NIH, the Vaccine Research Center. And NIH gets revenue from that. Okay, so what the, I have seen in the data, and is now being confirmed, you know, more and more abundantly on an almost daily basis, is that the risk associated with the vaccines are are sufficiently significant that they outweigh the potential benefits. I'm often asked. Is there a cohort, an age group, a risk group for which you still think the vaccines are safe and effective? 
My position has been for the whole way through this that the vaccines should be deployed only in the high-risk population for a variety of reasons. Risk-benefit ratio and the evolutionary drive of developing escape mutants. So I have been aligned with the Great Barrington Declaration from the beginning. Here's the problem is when you look at the available data, all of which has problems with potential exception of some of the Northern European databases where they have really rigorous socialized medicine and few barriers to disclosing medical information. Iceland is a notable example. Most of the data is really contaminated with various forms of reporting bias. There's a recent peer-reviewed study out that suggests that the reporting bias in the VAERS system is about 20-fold, roughly. So that means that the number of adverse events of any given type or deaths reported in VAERS is underreported by about 20-fold. Now there's others, such as the Steve Kirsch group and Jessica Rose that are deep experts in this and have examined the same data that assert that it is 43-fold difference. And there's a peer-reviewed paper out there titled, you know, Why Are We Vaccinating Children? that is more aligned with those higher numbers. And so when you, if you run those numbers, so multiply the VAERS reports by those cofactors, you end up with some very large numbers of deaths and adverse events. And then if you do the risk-benefit ratio calculations, it becomes very hard to justify the vaccines as saving more lives than they're than they're, um, than they're killing. I don't know how else to say it gently. Um, all the way through all the cohorts. So now I'm forced into a very tenuous position where my prior position has been um, save the vaccines for those that need the most, aligned with the Great Barrington Declaration, to having to acknowledge the possibility that the data as it's emerging now suggests that there's no benefit for these genetic vaccines in uh, any of the American cohorts. And of course, then I'm immediately branded as an anti-vaxxer, which I'm already branded as an anti-vaxxer and attacked because I disagree with the mandates. Why do I disagree with the pediatric mandates? So number one, the adverse events are clear and compelling. And for those who wish to fact check on this, I invite you, as I invited Thomson Reuters, to visit our website, www.rwmalonemd.com, where data on pediatric risks, primary data, and peer-reviewed studies are aggregated in a bunch of tabs by different organ systems and, and you know, whether they're peer-reviewed references. We have a massive uh, collection of uh, the reports of sudden death in high-performing athletes, youth through early 20s. We're all aware that this has been discussed. You can click on those and see the information or the article or whatever covering those. Make your own decision. We also have links. There's a very large number of pediatric deaths that have been reported in the U.S. VAERS database. And my wife and partner, Dr. Jill Glasspool Malone, went through every single one of those, opened them up, made an assessment. Was it clear that this person committed suicide or had some other cause of death? Or was, it re or was reported by their parents or some other third party. All of those got rejected. 
and not included in that list, only the ones that came in from physicians and seemed to her eyes to be reasonably associated with vaccination are listed there. But you don't have to rely on her. They're there as links to the VAERS database, and if you click on them, you can see the actual VAERS report that was filed by a physician saying this is what happened. And you can make your own decision about whether or not you think that that's vaccine related. So all of those data are there, and it is clear that parents should think twice, and grandparents, about vaccinating their child, because once the damage occurs, if it occurs, and it may occur at the, you know, in some for these serious adverse events like neuropathy, like Maddie DeGuerre developed, or the myocarditis or pericarditis so, so severe that it puts your child into the hospital, and a number of other effects, that event rate is about one in a thousand to one in two thousand children. So that means that there's a good chance that if your child takes the vaccine, they won't be damaged. They won't show clinical symptoms. Uh, they may have subclinical damage. But, you know, the question is, do you want to take that chance with your child? Because if you draw the short straw and your child is damaged, most of these things, if not all of them, are irreversible. There is no way to fix it. And I get these emails all the time, doctor, doctor, what can we do? This has happened. And, and the, once it's happened, there's, you can't go back, you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So that's, that's my point in general about the logic of vaccinating your children when they have virtually no risk from the virus unless they have pre-existing major conditions. Now the Unity Project's position is <coughs> one based basically on the logic of informed consent versus forced vaccination that mandates should not happen, the state should not be forcing itself into the family, the decisions belong at the level of parents, not at the level of the state or the school board. School boards and schools and teachers have no right to understand and seek out medical information about their students. That's illegal. And yet it's being done all the time. And students are being bullied if they haven't taken vaccine. Now, looping back, I suggest that has to do with the fact that many teachers have succumbed to mass formation. But because I, I can't believe that they would so readily transgress the fundamental ethics that they've been taught as teachers. But it's happening all the time. Talk to any child who's not vaccinated, who is in school, and they will tell you horror stories. And we have recorded videos um, of children speaking about these things and uh, recorded videos. You can find it on the um, uh, website for the Unity Project, unityprojectonline.com. You can find a fascinating video of Mark McDonald, pediatric psychiatrist in, in Los Angeles, speaking about the profound damage that has happened to children through all these behaviors, the bullying, and everything else. Um, just to, to pick that apart a little bit, it's not just the jabs. It's the masks. It's the disruption of schooling. There are measurable deterioration in very young children that have been born or are at very young age during this outbreak with all that they've been subjected to of a 20-point IQ drop, clear evidence of developmental delays. 
children must see faces, they must see mouths in school and in their social interactions in order because their brains are developing in real time. They're picking up all kinds of information from their environment and their interaction with their peers about social learning and language that requires them to be able to visualize the expression on people's faces. That's all damaged by the masking. The damage that's being done to this young cohort through these policies is profound and it will resonate for decades. So think twice before you vaccinate your kids because if something bad happens you can't go back and say oops I want to do over. Um, mandates are illegal based on the Nuremberg Code, the Helsinki Accord, the Belmont Report. These continue to be unlicensed products. They're only available through emergency use authorization, which by the way that emergency use authorization is predicated on the declaration of emergency issued two years ago January 15th, which will expire, which may will expire in just a few days from where we are right now. So they have to redeclare another two-year national emergency or all of these emergency use authorizations for drugs and vaccines go Okay, that is how tenuous this is. These are not licensed products and they're being forced onto your children and they have risks and the media through its censorship and big tech is blocking your ability to even learn what those risks are so you can make an informed decision for your children yourself. That is a huge crime in my opinion. And just to kind of remind everybody, right, your stipulation, and this is certainly, you know, I've seen papers that actually look at a review. Dr. Paul Alexander has done kind of an extensive literature review that looks at the risks of uh, the virus to, to children. And it, for healthy children, it's very, very, very small. So this is all review, in this context. And right? that review that Paul did was pre-Omicron. That's pre-Omicron data. So that minuscule risk that existed historically with the prior strains, including Delta, which is a wicked bad virus, is not representative of Omicron. There is virtually no data available on the risks of Omicron in children, but all the indications are it is minute. Matter of fact, this is a basis for a Supreme Court amicus briefing that I'm signed off on that will be filed today with the US Supreme Court. The government has no data upon which to base any mandate, any government, any school board, to base any mandate requiring these vaccines, which are mismatched for Omicron, in children to justify the risk-benefit ratio for children in preventing Omicron, which is the dominant virus currently spreading. Well, okay, and so the bottom line is, and this goes back to this earlier question, these vaccines are mismatched in your and others' opinion for the this new... Incontrovertible. It's not just an opinion. They're even for Omicron, this is why the federal government, let's hope this is why, they have withdrawn access to many of the monoclonal antibodies. Is there mismatched for Omicron? So on your Substack recently, you've uh, referenced the statements of the, a, a leader, and I think an Indiana insurance company. 
worth worth over a hundred billion dollars. He's the CEO. Right. That basically he came out and said that excess mortality over the last year, based on their data, and particularly in Q3 mm -hmm. of 2021, is running at 40% over baseline. And he makes the point using typical insurance actuary uh, dry data analysis that an event that was three standard deviations above the mean, because he's dealing with such large data sets. In his case, he's talking about data that they have on 18 to 64 year olds that are fully employed because that is who his company insures. Fully employed 18 to 64 year olds. And looking at his data, he says that a three standard deviation from uh, above the mean would be about a 10% increase in excess death. And yet he's seeing a 40% increase. This is relative to 2020. So this is an increase which is independent of, of virus in general. We had more virus attributed deaths in 2020 than we've had in, I'm sorry, in 2021, that's true, than 2020. But 2020 is the baseline that he's comparing against. And he's made the statement that the majority of those deaths is not listed as SARS-CoV-2 or COVID. So we have a 40% increase, unprecedented in his opinion. It's going to force them to raise their rates at a minimum. It could bankrupt members of the insurance industry. He says that this is being seen all across the industry, not just in his firm. This 40% increase over the 2020 mortality, unprecedented, and he sees no sign of any change in that trend line in the fourth quarter, because those data aren't in yet. So this, when he gave this very dry uh, discussion in a joint Zoom call with hospitals and other insurers in Indiana, and it was covered by a relatively obscure publication, uh, it was picked out by some stock analysts. One of them sent it to me. And as you mentioned, in our Substack, we came out with one of the first discussions about it. Then Zero Hedge came out with a the discussion. There are those that attribute the significant drop in Pfizer stock valuation to that being disclosed and circulated on the street. Um, this, these are not trivial data. This is coming from a very large data set. They are not sorted by cause of death. We don't know if it's due to suicide or which could be the case because of this very phenomena we were talking about, the social isolation and other things, depression, the lockdowns, all those kinds of things. We don't know the effect on, on mental health. You know, is this people ODing on opiates or other drugs to treat uh, their depression. We well, have no idea. I think based on the CDC did, I'm just going to jump in because I'm remembering a recent report that the CDC did pick out that fentanyl overdosing has become the number one cause of death yeah. in a particular cohort. So this, it could be. Yeah. Could be. Although yeah. these are fully employed people um, uh, in this younger cohort that 
has not had major mortality from SARS-CoV-2. So something is going on. And I'm, I, if, you were, uh, if we were going to have a bet here, I would say it's multifactorial. But there is a very high probability because this is the same cohort that has been subjected to vaccine mandates. So they're highly vaccinated and they seem to have significantly more mortality than the general population. You would think they would have less. They have healthcare, they have insurance, they have jobs. What's not to like? Um, so compared to the rest of the population and what they're experiencing, these are, the, these are the ones that are in the best position. And yet they're having this excess mortality. It's inexplicable, but we do know that this is a highly vaccinated cohort because of the federal mandates that all businesses greater than 100 employees shall be fully vaccinated. So it's inexplicable right now. It is a foreshadowing of something that is, you know, an indicator of massive death. Well, yeah, and I think, I think the report also said that a 10% increase is like a once in 20 year, I think they used the word cataclysm yeah. or something yeah. like this. So 40% is a whole different, a whole different piece altogether. Yeah. And they also mentioned in the report, the uh, CEO mentioned that it's not just increase in death, but it's also increase in disability claims, which they'd always also be seeing because they're a life insurance policy company. You know, we did a little bit of number crunching following this, looking at uh, the 12 months ending in October. And we were actually comparing 20 and ending in 2019 data versus ending in 2021 data. And we found that there was a 40% increase in mortality for people ages 18 to 49 compared to that same period. And now the new, the new CDC data doesn't disclose uh, where that mortality is coming from. It's just aside from, I think, pneumonia. So if I can react yeah. to that, Jan, yeah. what you're describing is the difference between pre-pandemic and year one of the pandemic. What this insurance CEO is describing is year two of the pandemic compared to year one of the pandemic. So that would be potentially additive on top of the effect that your data analysis from the CDC is demonstrating. There seems to be a very robust and needed area of study here. And I, I mean, I, I guess, I guess I'll say it out Gently here. If there, <laughs> if there are any uh, people who have access to some of this insurance company data and are, that are willing to share it, we'd like to, we'd like to see that. And we'd like to be able to do some analysis on it. It, it would yeah. be in the public interest. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is not just about your profit or your profit or your competitive position. This is, we're talking about a major human tragedy in terms of disability and death uh, and getting to the core of the why question is ethically crucial. And if we can't get that out of the US government, at least we could get it out of the insurance industry who has intimate detailed knowledge from very, very large numbers in a comprehensive way because it's their business to do it. Robert, any final thoughts as we finish up? As I always, thanks Jan, as I always try to close, um, let's be kind to each other. This is a problem that we're all confronting. It's not Democrats or Republicans. It's not left or right. It's not vaccinated or unvaccinated. It's not pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. It's not a particular ethnic group. We're all in this boat together. And in my opinion, 
after learning from Matthias and everybody else, the real underlying problem is some social ills that have, you know, are an emergent phenomena of all of the change in social media and electronic appliances, all these things that have torn us apart. And, you know, the media has acted as napalm on an existing dumpster fire. They exacerbate all of these ills and problems through their behaviors. I think that we have to come together as a people. And um, this is the reason for the rally. This is the logic of the rally that is scheduled in D.C. on January 23rd. It's a Sunday on the quad between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. And you can find information about it on the website called DefeatTheMandatesDC.com. But in my opinion, my core message, let's be open-hearted. These are, we don't have evil people. The pro-vaccine or pro-mandate people are not evil. They're our fellow humans. I think the way we get out of this is with three core concepts and words. We need to restore integrity in our public officials, in our companies, in our entire lives. You know, stop lying. A noble lie is not okay. Restore integrity. Restore human dignity. We are not economic units. We are not um, uh, excess mouths that have to be fed. We're humans. Whether we are at the lowliest, lowest, you know, somebody who's homeless on the street or somebody who lives in the White House or in the, works in the Capitol, we all deserve to be treated with dignity and we need to treat each other with dignity. The last point is community. This is the true underlying social ill. If we learn from the logic of Matthias Desmet and mass formation, we need to find community again. We need to find connections between each other. And that doesn't mean online with your friends list, getting your dopamine rush when somebody clicks like, okay. It means actually being with each other, whether it's church, community groups, sports activities, whatever, we have to find community again and rebuild it. And that's how we heal. That is the underlying illness. And I suggest that our way out of the woods is easily captured in three words, integrity, dignity, and community. Well, Dr. Robert Malone, it's such a pleasure to have you here again. Always. Look forward to the next one. Thank you.